So, uh, before I start, if, if, you wanna, if you don't get the Driscoll's prayer letter, or if you want to be part of their support team, uh, talk to them after the service, and they'd be happy to get you on. Wouldn't it be just great to be involved in praying for them and giving to their ministry uh, to see the gospel go forth in Japan? And, and I think uh, they should write a book yes. titled, How to Mobilize Your Kids for Missions. That's crazy. How'd you guys do that? I mean, we're, we're just happy as parents, grandparents, that our kids, grandkids come to know Jesus. But what a blessing uh, to have your kids serving the Lord. And I mean, a blessing and a, a little heartache, right? This would be so spread out all the time. But just pray for them in that. I, I will, uh, I've sort of committed to pray for them as grandparents now, being far away from their grandkids. So, uh, yeah. Turn in your Bibles. To Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, chapter 3, verses 5 through 11 is where we'll be looking. Now, as the Asphalt Lee uh, small group who are currently studying, well, the general topic is the letters of Paul. As, so as they could tell you, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote at least, how many? How many books of the New Testament? Don? No, don't. You never, Dave Doherty taught me this, never ask an adult a factual question in a group of people because their mind can go and they, they won't know. He wrote at least 13 of uh, 27 New Testament books. There's some debate as to Hebrews, if he wrote it or a disciple of his or whatever, but that's not so important. And one of the things that marks the writings uh, his writings, Paul's writings, is that theology, doctrinal truth, comes first, and then it's followed by practical instruction. Paul calls his readers to live out the theology, the theological truths that he proclaims. So some of us might remember this from our study in the letter, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul presents this deep Christ-centered theology, which culminates in a tribute to God. Last verse, chapter 11. For, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Right? And this is immediately followed because there's no chapter divisions. Paul didn't write chapter divisions, but chapter 12 for us, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore based on that and everything that went before, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. First theology, then second practical instruction for living out that theology. And this pattern is found in most, if not all, of Paul's writings, including our book, Colossians. As I mentioned last week, chapter 3 marks this transition. In chapter 1 and 2, Paul's primary focus was theological in nature. He wrote of the supremacy, the preeminence of Christ above, over all things. He explained the nature of false teachings, false theology, that was seeking to divert the Colossians from Christ. And he proclaimed the believer's identity in Christ, who they, who we are in Christ Jesus. Then in chapter 3, he transitions to the practical instructions for living out these theological truths. We saw that last week, 
verses 1 and 2, if then you have been raised with Christ, based on who you are in Christ, that you've been raised with Christ, then practical and foundational applications, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, on earth. Why should those who've been raised with Christ seek and set their minds on the things that are above? Verse 3 and 4. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Again, based on the theological truths of Christ's supremacy and our identity in Christ, which Paul has already detailed in chapter 2, we're called to obey the foundational command to pursue what's above. That was last week. This week and beyond, we'll continue to see practical, positive instruction based on theological truths. Beginning in verse 5, Paul gives another single command. The instruction, this is our first point, to execute what's earthly in you. Say that fast three times. Execute what's earthly in you. In verse 5, Paul writes, put to death, therefore, therefore, based on the theology that's gone before, based on who Christ is and who you are in Christ, based on your death and resurrection in Christ, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, last week we talked about earthly uh, temporal things, if you remember. Paul instructed us to pursue the things above, not the things of this earth. Whether those earthly temporal things are good or bad, sinful or not, our focus must always be on the eternal things, the above things, the things of God. As Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now here in verse 5, Paul focuses not on all earthly things, but specifically on what is earthly in you. In you, not me. No, in you and me. Okay. You see, even though, as Paul wrote in verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, your old self has died. It's a fact. And you've been raised with Christ to a new life, hidden with Christ in God. He's speaking to believers, those who've trusted in Christ. This is the reality of who you are. Even though that is true, there remains a residue of your old self, often called the flesh. But because of what Christ has done for you and the fact that you are in Christ with, with Christ in God, that old self, the flesh, is not who you truly are and ultimately has no power over you. However, I, 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 I almost said this is the bad news, but it's not. Because it's, it's from God. It's God's wisdom and sovereignty. This side of heaven for God's purposes, including, I believe, for our, the testing of our faith, that we might know that our faith is real, He allows this residue of our old self to remain. And therefore, instead of living out our new life in Christ, instead of being who we truly are, we can still, at times, give in to our old sinful self. Anybody ever done that? Show of hands? No, just kidding. Therefore, what is earthly in you and me, the residue of our old self, must be dealt with. And Paul's clear about what to do with it. Like James Bond, 
we have a license to kill. Put to death what is earthly in you. That phrase, put to death, is the Greek word necro, where we get words like necrosis and other death-related words. It means to make dead, to slay, to mortify, to deaden, to destroy. Paul then goes on to list what is earthly in you. What is earthly in you? Well, here it is. The you refers specifically to the Colossian believers, but it also refers to all believers. This is what is earthly in you and me. Paul gives two lists of sins, one in verse 5 and the other in verse, verses 8 and 9, all of verse 8 and a little of verse 9. Now, these lists are not exhaustive. They don't cover every imaginable sin, but they do cover several areas that I assume the Colossians were struggling with and I know that we struggle with. In verse 5, Paul specifically addresses four elements of sexual sin which must be executed. The first is uh, sexual immorality. This is one word in the Greek, pornea, where we get our word pornography, pornographic, all of that stuff. It includes every kind of immoral sexual relation, fornication, sex outside of marriage, adultery, sex between two people, at least one of which is married to someone else, homosexuality, sex between people of the same gender, etc. Because of, uh, of the godless nature of our current culture, what many, even in the church, have forgotten is that God and God's Word again and again calls His people to chastity, which uh, is a seldom heard word that means refrain, refraining from sex outside of marriage. Now, in the Greco-Roman world of the Colossians, all kinds of sex outside of marriage was common, accepted even. In fact, sex played a part in their religious life. For example, there were temple uh, religious sites, temples, prostitutes, those who you pay for sex. So the Bible's call to chastity was radical to the pagan culture of Paul's day. And unfortunately, it's just as radical in our day. When we advocate for sexual, biblical morality, we're labeled as judgmental or old-fashioned. Chastity is no longer a value in our modern pagan culture. Our culture is pagan, just so we're clear. Which means as a believer, it becomes more difficult and more crucial to put to death, to destroy the earthly sexual immorality that is, that is in you. The second sexual sin which uh, we're to kill is impurity. This refers to moral uncleanness. It certainly includes sexual immorality, but it's broader, subtler, more general. It not only involves impure actions, but also impure thoughts and speech, sexual fantasies, coarse jokes, flirting, all of which originates in a polluted heart or filthy mind. And Paul says, put to death, kill the earthly impurity that's in you. Third is passion. This refers to inordinate affection or lust. This is a sin of the mind, to sexually desire someone who is not yours to desire. Remember, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God not only wants our actions to be pure, but he also wants our thoughts to be pure. God cares about our heart. That's where the, 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 our thoughts and stuff come from our heart. Therefore, Paul says to put to death, slay earthly passion that is in you. We see this also in the fourth and final element of sexual sin is evil desires. Like passion or lust, this speaks of emotions, longing for what is forbidden, what is evil, wicked, self-serving, especially in the area of sexuality. And Paul says, put to death, rid yourself of earthly desires. So we've summarized the, the four sexual sins that Paul's listed. Certainly, these were part of what the Colossian believers struggled with. Otherwise, Paul would not have listed them. He would not have had to call for their death if they were not in some way alive. And we all know that these sins are alive and well in our day. It seems to me that this area of sexual sin is more, more prominent in our society than ever before. I've lived almost 60 years, and it just keeps going wrong. And therefore, more... Uh, we're more in need, there's more need than ever uh, for it to be executed in the lives of believers. I think back to my childhood and even my teen years, I was certainly exposed to sexuality. But compared to uh, what my son and daughter had to face with the continual lowering of sexual moral standards and the rise of the dreaded internet with its touch of a button sexual images... What I faced was minor compared to what my kids faced, and it's just getting worse. We need to pray for our children and our grandchildren as they grow up in a world gone uh, sex crazy. One commentator wrote, it's conceivable that on a given evening of TV watching, you can see more sexual, sensual sights than your grandparents did in their lifetime. And way back in 1984... Is anybody alive before? No. In the January issue of Psychology Today, a magazine not known for its biblical values, uh, they stated that pervasive cultural that desensitization has taken place through films which feature sexual violence and suggested that such films be packaged with the warning labels. Uh, as are cigarettes. That was 1984. Speaking only of movies that people had to choose to go to and pay for, today, much worse images are cabled into our households. They're on our TVs, computers, phones that we all have. They're all available at a touch of a button. Now that's the culture we live in. And that's the culture seeking to lead us down the path of sexual destruction. But unfortunately, this culture is impacting the church. There is, it seems, an amazing capacity for self-delusion among Christians with respect to sexual sin. I've known professing, Bible-carrying Christians who convince themselves that God was okay with their specific form of fornication. I had a missionary colleague who engaged in an adulterous affair on the field. 
I've known Christians who were involved in ministry, but at home watched things that were filled with sexual immorality. Even more tragic, the delusion is so deep that Christians often see no inconsistency in their behavior, justifying their choices with lame excuses like, uh, oh, the acting is so great, and the story is amazing. Or, I need to keep up with uh, what's happening in our culture so I can minister to the people around me, to the non-believers. Can I... I won't use... I say bull. And you fill in the rest. We say we live for God. We say we live for the God of the Bible. But our lives often show we live for the God of entertainment. Regardless of the sinful sexual nature of that entertainment. I got to see that. Look, I'll be honest with you. I have a TV. And I sometimes watch it. But I've pretty much given up on anything produced in the last 20 years or so. Currently, my go-to show is Gunsmoke, which is fairly wholesome, but still has the saloon girls, right? There is the long branch. So I pray for myself and for each one of us here today that we will take God's Word seriously. You know, I'm kind of joking a little bit, but all that aside... We need to take it seriously and put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and to that, Paul adds, covetousness, which is idolatry. The word covetousness here could also be translated avarice or greediness. It means not merely the desire to possess more than you have, but more than you ought to have, particularly that which belongs to someone else. Now, covetousness certainly has its lustful sexual aspects, but, as we, but we can also covet many other things. That's why the Tenth Commandment is very clear. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. We would add if we were writing it today, his car, you know, his, his lawn, his kitchen renovations, I don't know. We want what our neighbor has. We not only want his wife, but we want his other stuff as well. Covetousness points to the great sin of materialism, or uh, this isn't a word, I made it up, earthlyism. We desire what is earthly, and Paul says it's idolatry. It turns the earthly things, the temporal, material things, into gods. It's trusting in what you have, what you own, what you've saved, above the God who created you. It's true that whatever you put your trust in, that is what you worship. And unfortunately, materialism is the true religion of thousands of confessing Christians today. Believing that God exists to reward their faith with earthly wealth. There's a sense in which covetousness is even more dangerous than sexual sin because it can pass as respectable. So often, it's the successful, covetous person who we honor. 
As the proverb goes, if a man is drunk with wine, we kick him out of church. If he's drunk with money, we make him a deacon. Now, this is serious business. No, I do a joke, and then I say this is serious business. Somebody needs to work on my flow here. Because it says in verse 6, maybe the most serious part of this whole thing, on account of these uh, sexual sins and covetousness, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you, these sexual sins, covetousness, in these you once walked when you were living in them. Living for them. Paul's message is clear on two fronts. First, God hates these sins. His judgmental wrath will be felt on all who continue to practice them. I'm not totally sure what that looks like, when that will happen, if it's here, if it's then, if it's now, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I do not want to experience it, and I do not want it for you. We want to avoid the wrath of God in any form at any time. And second, second thing Paul makes clear, we once walked in. We once lived in these sins. They were part of us. But notice and understand that Paul uses the past tense. Hallelujah. This is who you were. This is not who you are. Remember the theology. You died, were buried, resurrected, and ascended with Christ. This is no longer who you are. This is no longer where you need walk. And yet, there are sinful things that we must deal with. Earthly things within you and me. Namely, Paul names them, sexual sin, material sin, covetousness. We're to put them to death. And and there's more. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. I always thought that was obscene talk from, where else would it come from? But your mouth, but anyway. Do any of these th- things like hit home with you? Are you going, ah, oh, what about that? What about, what did I say the other day? Do you struggle with evil attitudes, evil speech? Do you sometimes give in to anger, rage, malice? Anger involves internal violent passion. Ooh! Wrath is that anger boiling over. It's like the next level. Malice speaks of a desire to see harm come to another. It's, hate, it's a hateful attitude which plans evil and rejoices when it falls upon one you hate. And to these, Paul adds slander, hurtful speech that defames the character of another and obscene talk from your mouth, foul, filthy, abusive speech. And finally, Paul concludes his list of sins by saying, do not lie to one another. Lying is a great sin against God, against the church, against love. Just ask uh, Ananias and Sapphira, New Testament Christians who were struck dead for their lies. As Christians, we're to speak the truth in love. We're to speak that to one another, and we're to speak that to the rest of the world. We're to be people of honesty, integrity, and compassion. So Paul says to the Christians of Colossae and Riverside, put to death. Put away, rid yourself, destroy, kill sexual sin, covetousness, evil attitudes, and evil speech. And again, the fact that Paul calls us to execute these things means they exist. In some way in us, in the church, we've seen them in other believers. 
That's easy to point out. And I think we've also seen them in ourselves. And we must put them to death. More on how to do that later. But regarding these and other sins, Paul does not want us to feel defeated. He wants us to know that we, by the power of God, can overcome, we can put to death these earthly things in us. Therefore, he gives us hope and help. He gives us the incentive to execute what is earthly in you. Following the list of sins to be executed, Paul writes these encouraging words. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is a reminder of the theology Paul's already proclaimed. We can put off the evil practices of our former life because... When we came to Christ, we died to our old self, and we've been raised to a new life. We were born again. We were given a new self. We spiritually took off the old self and put on a new self. The old self, with its sinful ways, is not who you truly are. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Put that on your mirror, your refrigerator. All authentic believers have a new self with new spiritual desires and abilities. And therefore, wonderfully new possibilities are available in this life. Again and again, this new self, not the old, is who we truly are. And this new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, there is a constant renewal taking place in the believer's life as he or she grows in true knowledge of who God is. This knowledge of God leads to progressively being conformed into the image of the creator and thus becoming more like him. What an amazing thought. That's really, I think, our point of being here, to become more like Jesus, to go through this life in obedience to God, putting to death, and as we'll see next week, putting on, becoming more like Jesus. Paul says similarly in 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart, we're struggling, don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day kind of poetic, wasting away day by day. And again, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The same image is the image of God, the image of the Lord. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit in our lives. The more we execute the old self, the greater freedom we have for the renewal of our new self according to the image of God. That old stuff gets in the way. So what an incentive. If you want to be more like Jesus, then destroy the things in your life that are not like Jesus. Pretty straightforward, right? Oh, this isn't Jesus. i got to get rid of that. Sexual sin, covetousness, evil attitudes and speech, just to name a few. Those are things that Jesus were not of Jesus. Jesus didn't do none of, he didn't do any of that. 
Now, the final incentive for executing what is earthly in you is that the new self brings, a new, uh, brings with it a new radical change in human relationships. Paul says in verse 11, Here, in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. If we make a practice of putting to death our sexual sins and covetousness, if we lay aside evil attitudes and speech, we will fully experience the astonishing removal of barriers in human relationships. There will be unity in the church. The new self lived out brings the destruction of racial barriers, Greek or Jew, Religious barriers, circumcised or uncircumcised. Cultural barriers, barbarian or Scythian. And social barriers, slave or free. And when all these barriers are broken down, when there are no more barriers, all we are left with, what we should be left with, is Christ. We're bound together by Christ, for Christ is all. Christ is our life. Christ is what we live for. And Christ is in all. He is in every member of the body of Christ. He holds us together. He is our head. And if we want to experience the fullness of Christ and His body, then put to death the earthly things in you. These are the things that separate us. They hinder both our relationship with Christ and our relationship with those in His body. We must, therefore, put to death, put away sexual sins, covetousness, evil attitudes, evil speech. Again, why? Certainly because they're sinful, and they bring on the wrath of God. They will separate us from uh, one another and from Christ, but also because they are not who we truly are. It's when we practice these things, oh, that's when we're living a lie, That's not who you are. We have a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of the Creator. We have new relationships. Here there is no Greek or Jew, but Christ is all and in all. What incentive to put off the old and put on the new? So we know what to execute, and we, I pray, are sufficiently incentivized to do the executing. But that leaves us with one more step. One more point. How do we do that? Well, you must take the initiative to execute what's earthly in you. Again, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So how do we obey this command? Well, first, we need to state the obvious. Implied in the command to put to death is the fact that we need to act. We need to make a decision to do something. We need to take the initiative to kill the sin that's in us. 17th century theologian John Owen famously warns Christians, be killing sin or sin be killing you. His book, The Mortification, uh, Subduing or Killing of Sin, which I'd recommend to anyone who feels good about reading 17th century English. There's also a modernized version. I've listed it in your notes at the end of the notes, along with a couple others that I believe are helpful in killing sin. Owen's book is an exposition of Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, uh, what is earthly in you, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, what is earthly in you, you will live. 
So more incentive. Putting to death, killing what is earthly in you, the deeds of the body, sin is crucial if we're to live. If we're to experience the new life we've been granted in Christ. So how do we do that? Well, it's clear that we cannot physically kill sins because they're not physically alive. They do manifest themselves in very physical ways, but the sins themselves are internal, part of our mind or heart, if you will. They're part of your old self with its sin nature. So Paul is speaking metaphorically. Put to death, or as he says in verse 8, put away means to discard, destroy, to rid oneself of. We see this in the modern phrase, you're dead to me. Has anybody ever said that to you? Not me. If someone says that to you, it means as far as they're concerned, you no longer exist. You are no longer here on planet earth. They want nothing to do with you. And the same should be said of the sins in our lives. To put Sin to death means as far as you're concerned, it no longer exists. You want nothing to do with it. Like Joseph facing Potiphar's wife, you must run from sin. So putting to death or putting away sin in your life is an act of the will. You must decide that you're no longer going to live based on what is earthly in you. Now to be sure, the only way you can do that, the only way I can do that, the only way we can make that decision and live it out is by the work of Christ, the work that Christ has done in us. Because of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, because of His supremacy over His defeat of sin and death, those who trust in Him have died to our old selves and are raised to new life. Plus, Plus, there's a pretty big deal. We've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, by the Spirit's power, we can now put to death what is earthly in us. We can take the initiative to kill our sin. And I believe we must take the initiative in two ways. We kill the earthly in us from two directions. It's a two-pronged attack, if you will. The positive and negative. Paul, in verses 1 through 4, gave us the positive. Put to death what is earthly in you by seeking and setting your minds on the things that are above, the things of God, His plans, His purposes. As we talked about last week, we have, we have no time or capacity for the things of this earth if we spend our time in Bible intake, in prayer, in worship, in evangelism, discipleship, giving, and other spiritual disciplines. Also, and more importantly... It's through these activities that our faith and our relationship with God grows that we are renewed. The things of this earth are put off. They grow strangely dim. And the things of God are put on as we engage in these spiritual disciplines. And to add to that, it's been my personal experience. So that's sort of, that part there is sort of, that's, that's, you live that way and you're going to be able to put to death. It's just going to be, in some ways, a natural occurrence if you live in the practicing of these spiritual disciplines. It's been my personal experience that in the moment of temptation to give in to what is earthly in me, there's a clear decision to make. Will I seek and set my mind 
on the earthly thing that is tempting me, or will I turn away from the earthly and seek and set my mind on the things above, the things of God, specifically on God himself? Will I turn to God in prayer and just with my last breath, God, I'm going down here, help me to overcome this temptation. I'm calling upon you, Jesus. And I'll tell you this, I've not always been perfect in this. That, that is, I've not always said the prayer. But every time I have, every time I've made the decision to turn away from the temptation and turn to God, I've not fallen to what is earthly in me. I think that's what Paul means when in 1 Corinthians 10 he writes, No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God provides a way of escape from these uh, deadly sins. And that way is himself seeking and setting our minds on him. We'll have this reinforced for us next week when we look at uh, verses 12 through 14. In verses 5 through 11, Paul says, put to death, put away sin. And in verses 12, he tells us to put on a series of virtues. The Christian life is not primarily about negative, don't sin. I mean, that's this passage, and it's about that. That's important. But as we'll see next week, we're called not just to put off sin, but to put on the things of God that we might experience the new life that we've received in Christ. And one final thing we should understand about the positive approach to killing the sin in our lives. It brings great joy, satisfaction, meaning to our lives. You see, when we sin, we're saying, if not with our words, but with our actions, we're saying that we believe this sin will bring us something Joy, happiness, satisfaction, pleasure, purpose, whatever. But the fact is, sin with its fleeting pleasures ultimately brings us nothing but death. The wages of sin is death. Sin brings feelings of shame and guilt and emptiness and depression. It destroys lives. It destroys marriages. And worst of all, it separates us from God. However, when we put to death the sinful things in our lives and instead seek and set our minds on God and the, thi- his, his, the things, that, things of God and His purposes, His purposes, that's when we find lasting joy and satisfaction and meaning and purpose and yes, even pleasure. As David wrote in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our problem is we seek the pleasure, the joy, the happiness, whatever, in the things of this world. In the sinful things of this world often, when instead they can only truly be found in God. So that's the positive aspect of putting to death what is earthly in you. Seek, set your minds, put on the things of God where we find joy and more. But there's also a negative aspect We must pursue. And by negative, I don't mean bad or wrong. I mean difficult, painful, taking effort. We can't forget that even though when Paul says put to death, he's speaking metaphorically. The metaphor he uses is violent and expresses pain and effort. 
He didn't say, take a break from your sins. Take a breather. Set set them aside. He said, kill them. Killing means uh, pain, blood, sweat, and tears. As Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus is not advocating self-utilization. He, like Paul, is speaking metaphorically. You see, it's not our eye or our hand that causes us to sin. Sin comes from what is earthly in us, the residue of our old self. And here's the point. Both Paul and Jesus are making it. They're teaching us the great importance of ridding ourselves with this sin, this earthly in us. So much so, it's so important that we must execute what is earthly in us, no matter the cost, whatever it costs. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? We'll picture that. Fire chest, burning chest, right? Which is morphed into the common saying, if you play with fire, you'll get burnt. Many Christians are daily playing with fire. The fire of sexual sin, covetousness, sinful attitudes, speech, and are being profoundly scarred, being killed by their own sin. Therefore, we must proactively take the initiative and be killing sin. Practically speaking, that may involve a number of things. Some general, some specific to your life. That's why we have a Holy Spirit. We can go to Him. That's why we have God. We can pray to God. What is it in my life? What do I need to do? What do I need to kill? What do I need to rid myself of? For example, with regards to sexual sin, we need to be like Job who said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I, could I gaze at a virgin? We need a covenant with our eyes to not gaze upon the sensual things all around us. Unfortunately, it's impossible to filter it all out. Often before, the, uh, before our eyes even know what's there, before we can turn our head, there it is. But the question is, will you continue gazing or will you turn, will you turn to the sin or will you turn away to God? We need to make some difficult choices in our lives. We need to go before the Lord and allow Him to convict our hearts about the earthly that is in us. And then we need to act based on those convictions. Maybe even today He's been convicting you about something. Here's the worst possible thing you could do. Ignore the conviction. You need to do something about it. And it may be radical. Again, we like Joseph need to run from whatever tempts us. Putting to death what is earthly in you means some hard decisions. There are books and magazines we probably need to discard. Some of us need to toss our TVs. Some of us need to figure out how to filter the sexual images from our phone, our tablets, our computers. These things have become so necessary in our lives. I don't know. It's a major deal, right? Throw away your phone. I don't know. Some of us need to do the very hard thing of confessing our sins to a brother if we're male or a sister if we're female and asking for help, asking for accountability. 
In the area of covetousness, we need to counter our materialism by practicing the spiritual discipline of giving. There is nothing that kills earthly idolatrous materialism than giving to others. Now, some of you might be thinking, Pastor, aren't you being uh, kind of legalistic? I mean, my TV, my phone, what are you talking about? Well, just to be clear, as we talked about a number of weeks ago, legalism is when you believe and act or teach that obeying certain laws is how you're saved. That is not what we're talking about. This is not a message of salvation. We're talking about obedience to the Word of God. How the saved are to live. And to be clear, I mean, I, mentioned, I said this, but I'm going to say it again. Obedience to God is the best thing for you. This is a message of love. Paul is writing because he loves them and he wants what's best for them. And God loves us and he wants best, what's best for us. God's word specifically, what we've studied, Colossians 3, 5 through 11, instructs us today to put to death, to put away what is earthly in us. We've seen the meaning of this instruction to execute what is earthly. We've been given the incentive to execute what is earthly, and we've been encouraged to take the initiative to execute what is earthly. The only question that remains is, will we respond? Will we live based on who we are, our new life in Christ, or who we were, our old sinful self? Will we go to God and by the power of His Spirit, will we execute what is earthly in us? Will we put to death by seeking and setting our minds on the things above? And will we put it to death by making hard, Spirit-led choices? By God's power, doing whatever is necessary, whatever it takes to rid ourselves of the sin that so easily besets us. Would you pray with me to that end? Lord God, we come to you and we ask for a work in our lives. We ask for your spirit to convict us of what is earthly in us. Lord, it may be there are some things that are general and there may be specific ways these things manifest in each of our lives. God, I pray you would, you would use uh, your word today to cause us to seek to seek the things above, not the things of this earth, to put to death what is earthly in us, knowing that, that that's not who we are now, or that you've made us a new creation. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us live as new creatures in Christ, that you would give us uh, maybe even a ruthless nature to put to death these things that still remain, these things that need to be dealt with, these things that are blocking our relationships with one another and our relationship with you, Father. Help us to, to kill them. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, if you want to stand with me one last time, we're going to close out with a song and